This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, this past year, this past 18 months has been a hellish one for us all, hasn't it? And understandably, people are still struggling. For some, it might just be the effects of the situation that the world faces right now. But for others, there may be more specific things. Personally, I worry about my loved ones and making sure that I've got the right work-life balance to be there for them as best and as much as I can be. So whatever it is that's interfering with your happiness, this is where better help comes in. Now just to clarify, it's not self-help. What BetterHelp does is assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist who are specialised in all manner of issues from depression and stress right through to relationship or family conflicts for professional counselling for you. It's a service that's available for clients worldwide. It's much more affordable than any traditional offline counselling with financial aid even available if it's needed and you can start communicating in less than 24 hours in a convenient, safe and confidential online environment where you'll get thoughtful and timely responses from a counsellor that you can message anytime you wish, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with them, and all without the uncomfortable feeling that goes with sitting around in a waiting room, because nobody likes that, do they? I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Hello all, and very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room based true crime podcast that each time around myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, seeks to bring to you a tale or tales of obscure and unfamiliar true crime that I've scoured the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland for. Now he's here, but he's about as much use as a bloody ash tree on a motorbike. The rat that looks like a cat, Peaks, is here with me. And you lot, the wonderful enthusiasts who make all of this so worthwhile, and the very most important part, complete the true crime enthusiast triangle. It's as fabulous as it is each time that you've decided to join me today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, it's an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So this week I've been writing both this and this month's Patreon bonus episode in tandem. And that bonus episode is coming, in fact, in just a couple of days. I've just got to put the minor finishing touches to it, like recording and editing it. Just trivialities like that, you know. 
Now with the bonus tales, I'm always a bit of a fan of doing something a little different. It doesn't always have to be Grizzly Murder of the Week, does it? As I did with last month's tale, The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell. And as I shall be doing also with this month's one, which I can reveal is called Strange Tales from the South. It's the biggest umbrella title that I could come up with. I've compiled a few tales to make up an episode that does exactly what it says on the tin and that really intrigued me to learn of, so I hope that they do you too. Now if you want to hear this, if you want to hear Hellish Nell or countless other tales that being a supporter gets you, then it's so simple to do it should be called Simon and it'll cost you less than four groats and a ferret's egg to do so. You just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. Same show logo and everything like that. Or I've done all of that for you and there's a clickable link in the episode show notes that will take you right to it. Now also for Patreon supporters, I want to venture into the realms of being on camera online in a non-Leslie Grantham type way of course, must stress that. And I'd love for supporters to join me sometime where I'll quite happily discuss some of the voted for Patreon tales that I've covered since the show's inception. If there's anything burning about them that you folks wish to know, I just need to do a little bit more research into the best platform to do this with and all that. And then I'll put a poll up and we can just go from there. I think it'll be a bit of fun to do and I hope it's something that you'd quite like to get involved with also. So now I'm warmed up then and we're all better helped out. Let's grab the mutt by the nuts and get down to the tail this time around. Now it seems hard to think back to episodes this series pre-thriller, I must admit, but just before Duffy Mulcahy took over my life for a couple of months. Earlier this series I covered one of the most horrendous and heartbreaking cases that I've looked at to date here on The Enthusiast, in an episode called Annihilator. I know that some of you folks listen to the show episodes in a topsy-turvy kind of pick-and-choose order, so for those who haven't listened to that tale, it's a horrendous one that the title kind of alludes to what it's about really, family annihilation. Now what goes through the minds of perpetrators of such carnage, that really could be the subject of discussion and debate for who knows how long, how long have you got? But sadly, terrifyingly, When I looked into the crimes of Philip Austin for Annihilator, I realised just how much something so terrible isn't a unique, devastating, unheard of occurrence anymore. It happens much more often than you'd care to imagine. Unbelievably much more often. And it isn't always a nasty piece of work who you would just look at and always think, you're a bit of a wrong and you are, that's responsible for such acts. Perhaps more terrifyingly, more mind-boggling, Culpability for such acts can sometimes be laid at the feet of the nicest person, the most popular, the most respected, or the person you'd consider a safe bet. Our tale this time around is one such example. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, involving reference to crimes against children, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Snapped. The area of Pontsbury, a village just 8 miles southwest of the Shropshire county town of Shrewsbury, is an attractive countryside area that offers the outdoor enthusiast vast areas of picturesque oak woodland, 
and with its long disused quarry workings to explore through, and the many trails it has to offer the rambler, combined with the tremendous views of Shropshire's rear valley, it's a popular spot all year around, particularly in the summer months. Particularly popular is the Poles Coppiced Countryside Park, an area just a half mile south of the village. And it was here on the morning of Monday the 16th of July 2012 that a resident of Pontsbury out walking, 74-year-old Raymond Woodhouse, noticed a vehicle parked up and left at the entrance to one of the trails leading to a disused quarry. Although the car park area is consistently busy, Raymond's attention was drawn to this particular vehicle, a red Land Rover Freelander, registration number CK51YUV, for two reasons. Firstly, the vehicle had been parked in the exact same spot when he'd previously passed there four days previously, on Thursday the 12th of July, and he noticed that it hadn't moved in all that time. Secondly, because he was certain it was the vehicle that had, over the weekend, been the subject of a police appeal for anyone citing it to come forward, as it was the vehicle belonging to a 35-year-old Gloucestershire paper mill line supervisor named Kerry Fuller, who since the previous Wednesday had been reported as a missing person, along with his three children, 12-year-old Samuel, 8-year-old Rebecca, and 7-year-old Charlotte. So, Raymond subsequently telephoned police with his suspicions, who responded immediately, and upon confirming that it was indeed the missing vehicle, began a search among the muddy trails and overgrown paths for the vehicle's occupants. Just before 10am that morning, it was only a short distance away from the vehicle, some 400 yards at the edge of one of the two quarries in the area, that in bushes there, searching officers found a scene of pure, unspeakable horror. Laid out side by side, at first glance looking as though each of them were sleeping, before them were the lifeless bodies of all three of the fuller children, each one of them having been stabbed to death. Close by to the bodies, wedged into a mound of rocks, a blood-stained six-and-a-half-inch hunting knife was found, the instrument later determined to have been used to inflict such carnage and horror. Although emergency crews raced to the scene, even including an air ambulance scrambled from nearby RAF Cosford, it was soon all too clear that, tragically, there was nothing they could do. A post-mortem was later to reveal that the eldest, Samuel, had died from a single deep stab wound to his neck. Rebecca, meanwhile, had been stabbed in the throat as well as five times in the chest, and Charlotte four times in conjunction with her own throat wound. The two older children appeared to have fought desperately for their lives, evidenced by the deep cut marks to their hands where they tried to defend themselves from the onslaught. But there was no immediate sign of the children's father, Kerry, and although officers scoured the undergrowth and bushes nearby, there was no trace of him. Kerry Fuller was later found a short distance away, 60 feet down at the bottom of the quarry, his dead and broken body caused by the fractured skull and broken limbs that he'd received from such a fall. Horror beyond belief, that, eh? Now you can't even begin to imagine what finding something such as this must be like, can you?
it's not even something you'd want to try and imagine, is it? As officers from West Mercia Police taped off the entrance to the wooded area, four forensic vans parked up in the small caravan park next to the entrance as the inquiry began. A publicised photograph of the scene shows forensic examinations being carried out in the sealed off area with three blue tarpaulins, each covering the body of a child, in the foreground. Later that day, spokesperson for Gloucestershire Police said, Officers searching for missing man Kerry Fuller and his three children from the Forest of Dean have been made aware of the discovery of four bodies in Pontsbury in Shropshire. While the bodies have yet to be formally identified, Mr Fuller's family have been informed of the discovery and are being supported by police family liaison officers. The investigation into the deaths is being conducted by West Mercia Police. With the investigation moving swiftly, a day later, the officer leading the inquiry, Detective Chief Inspector Neil Jameson of West Mercia Police, said at a press conference at Shrewsbury Police Station that police believed the Fuller's vehicle had left Gloucestershire the previous Wednesday night or early on the Thursday morning and was thought to have been seen in the Leominster area at midday on the Thursday before being driven up to the Welshpool area later that same afternoon. From here, where it was last spotted, it must have headed straight to the Poles Coppice car park as Raymond Woodhouse had spotted it parked up here late that afternoon and it was later estimated that the bodies had lain in the spot for several days before police had discovered them. The drive up there from Pontsbury Village heads along a narrow, winding residential lane, which isn't just stumbled upon, so Fuller must have known where he was heading, and also, the forest paths are muddy, overgrown and quite steep in places, meaning that when the party arrived there, the Fuller children most probably went into the forest quite willingly, quite unsuspectingly, with their father, before they endured unimaginable horrors of the kind that only nightmares are made of, inflicted by the person they should have been safest with, who they loved and saw as their protector, their own father. For both Gloucestershire and West Mercia police stressed also at the press conferences that they were not seeking anyone else in connection with the deaths. In the days following the discovery, there was much talk about what could have driven Kerry Fuller to commit such an atrocity. His disappearance with the youngsters was described as being completely out of character for him by police officers when they began looking for them on the Thursday before they were discovered. A workmate of Fuller's, Stephen Boville, said later, On July the 11th, he seemed to be his normal self. He was always calm and level-headed. I have no idea if he was having any personal issues or family problems. However, he had uncharacteristically not turned up for his night shift on July the 12th. Another colleague of Kerry's, Peter Morgan, said, I thought him to be a reserved type of person, very mild-mannered and softly spoken. I'm not aware of any reason as to why he may have taken his own life or that of his children. And Fuller's former landlord, who didn't want to be named, said, He wasn't an aggressive man at all. His wife always wore the trousers, and they kept themselves to themselves. So, what drives such a person to commit such an atrocity?
Kerry Fuller was born in 1977, one of three children born to Geraldine and David Fuller, a biochemist, in the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire. He went on to attend White Cross School in the town of Lydney in the Forest of Dean, and it was whilst attending here that Kerry met a girl named Ruth Tocknell, the daughter of local artist Ron Tocknell and his holistic therapist wife Anne, who was in the same year as him. The pair became friends from the off, but as they progressed through school, after a while became a couple. Now whilst Ruth followed more in her own father's footsteps and had an artistic, creative temperament, going on to be a talented artist and sculptress, a keen belly dancer even, more like his own father, Kerry was the more academic of the two, earning straight A grades in biology, chemistry, physics and general studies before going on to study cellular and molecular biology at Huddersfield University when he left school. Not wanting them to be separated, Ruth had left Gloucestershire and gone to live with a man that she loved whilst he was studying here. We fell in love and ran away to Huddersfield, she later wrote on her Friends Reunited webpage. Is that even still a thing, Friends Reunited? Don't know. But what sounded on the surface like hearts and flowers between childhood sweethearts was anything but. Right from the start of this period, Kerry and Ruth's relationship was punctuated with episodes of violence that left them reeling. They adapted the student lifestyle of heavy drinking and according to Ruth, were both frequently violent towards each other whilst drunk. On one occasion, Kerry, after striking Ruth a few times, even attempted to strangle her with the telephone cord as she was attempting to call police to report him. Nevertheless, as people often do in such situations, they stayed together, and it was in Kerry's second year in Huddersfield that Ruth fell pregnant, and in 2000 gave birth to the couple's son, Samuel. Shortly after the birth, though, they separated for 18 months. Ruth and Sam had returned to Gloucestershire to live with her parents, while Kerry remained in Huddersfield and underwent counselling. It was reportedly also during this time, possibly suffering from postnatal depression, that Ruth tried to kill herself with an overdose of medication, although was found and had her life saved. In 2001, when Kerry graduated from university with a first-class honours degree, the couple were reunited when he returned to the Gloucestershire area, and he and Ruth moved into their own home together in the Forest of Dean. In 2002, Kerry secured a job with a global business company, Glatfelter, a company that manufactured paper-based food and drink products. Reportedly, the casings for two out of every three tea bags used worldwide was made by the company, and he got a job as a production line supervisor there, and life seemed to get better and better for Kerry and Ruth. In 2003, they welcomed their daughter Rebecca into the world, and their family was completed by another daughter, Charlotte, just two years later. Four years after this, both of the girls were bridesmaids when in August 2009, Kerry and Ruth finally decided to make their family whole and get married. Photographs from the couple's wedding day show Ruth dressed in a white flowing wedding gown, with her arms wrapped around a dressed in black husband, her head resting upon his shoulder, whilst he smiled proudly over her head, as their three children happily posed with them. It was a photograph that at the time was posted to Ruth's Facebook account, and indeed was to be much shared years later, albeit for more ominous reasons.
but at the time she posted it, she did so with a caption, My Babes. Later photographs from the wedding day show a fancy dress party where Ruth had added fairy wings and pixie ears to her flowing wedding gown, while Carrie had dressed as a character from Star Wars. My Obi-Wan was how Ruth had captioned that picture on Facebook. On an internet blog site that she ran at the time, Ruth wrote, I'm more in love with Kerry than ever. I feel without doubt that I'm utterly his and he's utterly mine. But although outwardly Kerry and Ruth now appeared to be a happily married couple with a glowing family, Ruth, a prolific social media poster, in various posts online appeared to paint a slightly different picture, one that showed at least in the part a certain dissatisfaction with the relationship. In one entry from 2006, she wrote, For the longest time, my relationship with Kerry was very fragile, and sometimes I still find it hard to have faith in our strength as a couple. But last night, Kerry dealt with something that made him feel threatened by talking to me about it, and instead of pushing me away, he held me closer. It made me feel so good. It made me feel worth the risk of trusting and that really is a big thing for us. The same year, when her youngest daughter was just a year old, she posted a blog entry entitled Bored, 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 referred again to her gypsy blood, and talked about the conflict between her yearning to be free and her love for a growing family, a post in which she wrote, Oh my God, I'm so bored with myself right now. When I was younger, I never stayed with the same people doing the same things for very long. Relationships and jobs rarely lasted longer than six months, so I was always meeting someone new. Don't get me wrong, I'm so glad I finally got over my commitment issues, met the love of my life and settled down to have a family, but sometimes I really feel like I want to break free just for a little while and do something wild. Kerry, meanwhile, also alluded to his increasingly domesticated life whilst writing on Facebook, around the same time, settling into the working world, becoming materialistic, missing my college and uni days, never seem to have enough time anymore for just chilling. Is it me, or are the years seeming to fly by quicker and quicker? In July of 2011, the family bought themselves a £162,000 cream pebble-dash semi-detached house in Station Road in the village of Milkwall, a short walk from the market town of Colford, where the two Fuller girls attended St John's Church of England Primary School. The eldest child, Sam, was a pupil at Lakers Secondary School in the same town. Also living nearby in Blakeney, a small village on the eastern edge of the Forest of Dean, were Kerry's mother Geraldine and his stepfather Geoffrey Peterham, his parents long since having divorced. His sister Abigail lived with her husband Matthew in nearby Bream. Ruth's parents Ron and Anne also lived nearby in Lydney and his sister Joanne lived with her husband Nick and their three children six miles away in Yorkley so the two families got to spend a great deal of time together. Sounds a standard domestic setup, proper grown-up stuff, doesn't it? And indeed, for the most part, it was. Ruth posted on her blog in 2011. Nothing beats being a mum, but you have to pretend to be altogether and responsible when you're a parent. When my three are all having a great time together without fighting, 
I can just sit on the stairs listening to them all day and it's the best feeling in the world. But the best feeling in the world soon lost its shine for Ruth in the family's new home felt increasingly bored as a stay-at-home housewife and mother and decided to embark on an open university humanities course at Cheltenham College, which Kerry was not happy with at all. It was in part because he was the polar opposite of Ruth, quiet by nature and rarely instigating any conversations, whilst Ruth was much more outgoing, it perhaps being not so much a stretch as to call her somewhat flirtatious. He was also of a possessive nature, and held what could be classed as traditional, outdated values. He earned well, and he enjoyed being the sole breadwinner for the family, and felt insecure and threatened by Ruth's need for a greater independence, to the point where whilst he could not stop her from pursuing her studies, he insisted driving her to and from her lectures at Cheltenham College. Now, One of Ruth's tutors for her course was a 38-year-old twice-married anthropologist named Mark Lindley Highfield, who before beginning his academic career had worked as a financial broker. Somewhat bizarrely, he styled himself as Mark Paul Lindley Highfield of Balumby Castle, after having bought the ancient Scottish feudal title Baron of Cartsburn for some £50,000 three years before in 2008. He'd sold this title on to an Italian genealogist two years later, before buying himself another feudal title, which he held at the time, Lordship of the Manor of Wilmington in Kent. Now, as a bit of an aside, when I was writing the episode, me and my mate had a look at some of these, and I was amazed at two things. Firstly, how much some of these cost to purchase, because they cost thousands, and secondly, what absolute nonsense the whole concept is, What an unreal, materialistic load of old horseshit. But to some people, things like this are more important than other things, and each to their own, I suppose. Rest assured, I'll not be bidding on the Grand Wizard Dragon Lord of Wrexham title anytime soon. But things like this obviously impressed some people, and as she continued on her course, Ruth soon developed a bit of a crush on Mark Lindley Highfield, though she was later at pains to point out it was nothing more than a bit of a schoolgirl crush, and nothing had happened between the two. As she continued with her studies, Kerry became increasingly jealous and insecure, and the resulting rows and the atmosphere at home left Ruth feeling more increasingly suffocated and frustrated, to the point where on the evening of Wednesday, July the 11th, 2012, tensions came to a head. Earlier that same day, Ruth had sent a series of flirtatious text messages to Mark, who lived with his second wife in Gloucester, and in one, she referred to a midlife crisis she thought she was having. He replied to her, not unkindly, but reminding her firmly of the boundaries that existed between a student and a tutor. Ruth also wrote in a Facebook status the same day that she was again having a midlife crisis, before adding later, Phew. That's my midlife crisis over with then, and only a few completely bonkers things done. Still, very glad of the urge to reach out to people. Loved that. It was a status that had received several likes, including one from Kerry's sister, Abigail. That evening, a work colleague of Kerry's, Stephen Harris, had telephoned the Fuller's home, and one of the children had answered the telephone, 
leaving the line open whilst they fetched their father. As he was waiting, Stephen heard a distinct ongoing row in the background between Kerry and Ruth, in which he distinctly heard the words, We can't live like this. When he had finished on the telephone, Ruth told Kerry that she might go away for a bit because she thought that their marriage might be over. She also admitted to her husband that she fancied Mark Lindley Highfield. Kerry then began behaving negatively, Ruth later claimed. He took off his wedding ring and began to cry, asking her if he should take it with him, referring to the fact that she'd taken hers off some months before, claiming it no longer fit her finger. Later, she and Kerry discussed superstitions surrounding the century's last sequential date, December the 12th, 2012, and whether or not the world was going to end then, and at some point, Kerry took a tent from upstairs, with Ruth wondering if he was at the weekend perhaps going to take the children away camping to Barmouth or Harlech in West Wales, where they'd previously enjoyed trips away. That night, Kerry cooked the family pasta for dinner, and the three children slept downstairs together as a fun sort of sleepover. Ruth said later, They sometimes did that to bond. I cuddled up with them and Kerry. Eventually I went upstairs, and Kerry must have followed at some point. Early the following morning, Thursday July the 12th, Ruth packed a bag and prepared to leave to spend a few days at her parents' house the husband and children being in the kitchen as she prepared to go. She recalled later, I said, take the kids, I'll tidy up here. That was the last time I saw Kerry. I guess he must have taken the kids with him, but in that moment, I just remember hearing the car door slam. That morning, Ruth also continued to send somewhat flirty texts to Mark Lindley Highfield, yet also affectionate messages to her husband. But later that morning, Ruth received a telephone call from the children's schools asking her where they were and she then began to panic because she had no idea. None of them were ill, so where were they? She returned to the family home with her father only to discover an empty house. Her husband and his son's mobile phones lay on the kitchen table. Ruth instantly became filled with a terrible sense of foreboding recalling later my head was completely broken i didn't know where the children were and i didn't know what that meant she was spotted by neighbors looking distraught pacing up and down outside the house even to the point where so tormented was she that something had happened to her children a distraught ruth swallowed a handful of pills and attempted to kill herself with a kitchen knife only stopped by the swift intervention of her father ron who later described the alarming mental deterioration in his daughter when she returned to the Fuller home to find the children missing and her husband gone. He said, She was emptying tablets into her hand, so I grabbed her, but then she broke free and grabbed a knife out of the kitchen drawer and was trying to plunge it into her. I dialed 999 and shouted the address down the phone, even though I wasn't sure I'd made a connection with them. She knocked the phone out of my hand and onto the table and the batteries fell out. After a struggle, I managed to ring Anne and told her to get over here as we had a big problem on our hands. After being assessed by a GP, Ruth was hospitalised later that evening, taken to Gloucester Royal Infirmary at 10.30pm and sedated. 
But while Ruth suspected as she was admitted that something terrible had happened to her children, and you can't know how you would feel unless you were placed into the same situation, can you? The rest of her family believed that Kerry had simply taken them away somewhere for a few days, and they were perfectly safe with him. However, given the terrible state that his daughter was in, Ron Tocknell did contact police and report his son-in-law and grandchildren as missing persons. By that time, they were, in fact, probably already dead, according to the coroner at the later inquest. That night, Ruth's sister Joanne Ballard maintained a vigil by her bedside, finding her sister in what she described later as a zoned-out, edgy and anxious state. Earlier, Ruth had confided in her sister about the breakup. Joanne later recalled, When she was in a cubicle at A&E at about 11.30, in a moment of lucidity, she said she and Kerry had not had a row, they talked and he understood. I asked what they understood, and she replied they were splitting up. I asked if it was linked to Mark, and she looked at me and nodded her head, clearly meaning yes. Joanne also recalled that Ruth had awoken from a tranquilised state late on the evening of the 12th of July and staring fixatedly into her eyes, had told her, I think that Kerry has killed Rebecca. She went on, I asked her to repeat this and she did, but she suddenly went back to a blank face and humming. By the following day, Gloucestershire Police had made a public appeal for any sightings of the family, stating that the family had no plans to go away, and Kerry Fuller's disappearance as being totally out of character for him. A description of the family car, a red Land Rover Freelander model, vehicle registration number CK51YUV was also given, and also as part of the appeal, they made a direct plea to Kerry Fuller himself to come forward but nothing. As Saturday July the 14th came with still no news of the Fuller family, Ron Tocknell posted on his own Facebook page, If anyone who knows Kerry has any idea of his whereabouts, please contact Gloucester Police immediately. We are all so very worried. Now a search of traffic cameras had by this time revealed that Kerry's red Land Rover had been spotted in the Lemonster area of Herefordshire at around midday on Thursday July the 12th and was picked up again later in Newtown in Powys at about 3pm the same afternoon. CCTV had then picked them up again further on in the Welshpool area just 30 minutes later. It's believed that shortly after this sighting, Kerry Fuller drove his children up to Poles Coppice at Ponsbury Hill, where here he left the car near a footpath at the entrance and led the children into the woods. Four days after their disappearance, the car was spotted by Raymond Woodhouse, some 75 miles away from the Fuller family home, and leading to the most unimaginable discovery that there must be. As news of the murders reached the shocked residents of the community in which the family lived, candles, floral tributes and soft toys were placed on the pavement outside the family's house. One poignant message read, May God look after you in heaven and give you the full life which you have missed in this world. There were references too to the children's grieving mother Ruth, but tellingly, none mentioned the name of their father Kerry. 
a candlelit vigil organised by parents at St John's Church of England Primary School in Colford, where the two Fuller girls had attended, was held on that Monday evening, where a period of reflection and silence was held, and three Chinese lanterns were launched at the gathering in tribute to the murdered children. The quizmaster at the village pub, the Tough Torn Inn, organised a minute's silence on the Tuesday night, and the following Sunday afternoon, a special service called Time of Memorial was held for all three children at St George's Church in Pontsbury, in which the Reverend Margaret Jones said the community wanted to show its support. The community here can't understand why it's happened, it's really affected them, and it's been a shock. We've also got a book of condolence and people have been lighting candles in the church. We want to gather together in support of one another to show our compassion and offer our prayers to the friends and families, as well as the victims themselves. Neighbours of the Fuller family in the days following the discovery spoke of their inability to understand the actions of Kerry Fuller. Robert Parker's garden backed onto the family's home and he had agreed to help Kerry build a dividing wall to replace an old fence as part of the five-year renovation plan. Ruth was quiet and never spoke, he said. Although Kerry was quiet, sometimes he would stop and talk. The kids were really chatty and were always out in the garden playing on the trampoline. Even when it was raining you could hear them out there laughing and playing. Kerry seemed quite placid and you'd never hear him shouting at the kids. But what sort of a man would do that? The kids were so lovely and happy, I cannot believe anybody could harm them. They were beautiful kids and would always talk and say hello. Janice Ayres, who lived next door to the Fuller family, said, Very, very sad. I just cannot say any more. They kept themselves to themselves. They were no trouble at all. They'd lived here about a year, and as far as I know, they bought the house as we knew the man who lived there before, and he was selling it. We would speak if we saw each other in the garden, but we never socialised together. Being out at work all day, you don't really know your neighbours. It is dreadful really to think about it. It's the way life is these days. You just live your own life. It's so sad for three young children. I have children of my own, and I would just be devastated. So devastated was Ruth Fuller that she'd issued a statement through her family asking that she be left alone to grieve, as there were no words at that time to describe how she was feeling or her loss. Her father-in-law, David Fuller, subsequently issued a second statement on behalf of both sides of the family, which said, Kerry was a gentle, sensitive and intelligent man, but also a very private one. He loved his children dearly, and they were such a focal point of his life. His relationship with each one of them was one of gentleness, involvement, and attentive nurturing. Sam, Rebecca, and Charlie were such charming individuals brought up in an environment of love. We cannot begin to imagine what was going through the mind of this gentle man to drive him to such tragic actions. We would ask all to respect our privacy at this time whilst we try to come to terms with this terrible loss. How would you even begin to try to? How would you? A private funeral service was held for the three Fuller children at the Forest of Dean crematorium on Thursday the 9th of August 2012, with a separate service held for Kerry Fuller a few days later. Some weeks later, 
a public memorial service for the children was held, with Ruth's family expressing their extreme gratitude for the messages of support they'd received. But each of them was still left shell-shocked by what had happened, with Ruth's sister Joanne telling the Gloucester Herald following the service. None of us understand it. None of us understand any of it. There's been a lot of sleepless nights from our eldest. For our middle child, who's six and was particularly close to Sam and idolised him, he's coming to terms with it, with help. We were particularly close with them as a family, and they would all come over and stay here with us for weekends. They would all pile into one bedroom, our kids and their kids, so there would be six of them in one bedroom. They were all like brothers and sisters together. They were as close as cousins could be. Her husband Nick, meanwhile, remembered lining the six children up at the front door in the morning ready for school and marching them out like a scene from the sound of music, he said. It doesn't get any easier. You don't think of them any less. You don't miss them any less. But you do get more used to feeling that way, Mr Ballard had said, struggling to conceal his emotions. On Thursday the 25th of April 2013, the inquest held at Edinburgh House, Wem Coroner's Court in Shropshire, to establish the cause of death of Kerry Fuller and his three children, heard from friends, relatives and work colleagues of Kerry, where he was described as a reserved family man, mild-mannered, softly spoken, a good listener who rarely instigated conversations, and who was happy spending time out walking in the countryside with his colleagues. But Ruth Fuller, who due to her mental health being so affected by the tragedy, could not attend court, submitted a statement in which she detailed her relationship with her husband. In it, she said that she believed he had killed their children in a hateful, cruel and horrible act before describing him as jealous and possessive. Detailing their life together, she said, I was violent to him on a couple of occasions, as he was to me. She made reference to the occasion where she claimed he had grabbed the telephone cord from her after her trying to ring the police during one domestic incident shortly after she gave birth to Samuel in 2000, in which he was said to have wrapped the cord around his hand in a motion which suggested he would strangle her. He took the cord from me and just came at me. In that moment, I saw something in Kerry, her statement said. She went on to describe the births of their children and their marriage, before she continued. I took the university course because I wanted to come out of my shell, but by the time I started at Cheltenham College, everything was changing in our marriage. We both knew something was going wrong in our relationship, and we were both in a strange mental state and had been for a while. He was very possessive and jealous, and didn't seem to like me talking to anyone. I was changing, and I realised that he was feeling neglected. He used to insist on driving me to and picking me up from my tutorials. I think it was his way of making sure I came straight home. It was difficult for Kerry to see me becoming more intelligent, happier and interacting with other people because he was so possessive. I think Kerry was feeling neglected while I was going away to better myself. She admitted also in the statement that she had developed what she described as a crush on her tutor, Mark Lindley Highfield, and that Kerry didn't like it. She also admitted that they had discussed separating on the evening of July the 11th, with Ruth continuing, I told Kerry I needed to go away for a bit. 
he thought I may have been going through a midlife crisis. Joanne, her sister, told the inquest that Kerry enjoyed being the sole breadwinner of the family, and that, I quote, he seemed uncomfortable with Ruth wanting being anything other than a mum. She continued that Ruth had confided in her that she had a romantic crush on Mark Lindley Highfield, but that she considered it to be a schoolgirl crush, and aside from there being no question of it developing into a relationship, there was no suggestion that anything had happened previously between them. It wasn't something that they'd talked about in depth, Joanne claimed, because she didn't think it to be serious or important. Deputy Coroner Andrew Barclay asked Joanna if she believed Kerry Fuller was unnaturally possessive, to which Joanne replied, In my opinion, yes, it was more possessive than I would be comfortable with in a relationship. He was very possessive, and she could be very flirty, and this could cause problems. It emerged that Kerry was all too aware of the one-sided flirtatious relationship that had developed between Mr Highfield and his wife, and had read some of the text messages that they had exchanged. On their final night together, Ruth recalled in her statement, I had sent an email to my tutor with my art portfolio, and we exchanged a few texts. I told Kerry I'd sent the email to my tutor, but I didn't show it to him. He said he had seen the texts, so he must have looked at my phone at some point. We'd spoken about Mark previously, and I had admitted that I thought he was attractive, and Kerry didn't like that at first, but he was okay. The court heard that on July 11th and the 12th of the previous year, Ruth sent five text messages to Mark Lindley Highfield, and had received six back. In a statement to the inquest, Mr Lindley Highfield told of one such message he'd received from her, saying, I received a text from Ruth asking if I wanted to go and get a drink. I then got another apologising and saying it was meant for someone named Kerry. I replied sarcastically that it was a shame and put ha at the end of it to make sure. He also said he'd received a further message from her referring to a midlife crisis and it had prompted him to remind her of the boundaries between student and tutor, which he did in a text. Now I would have substituted suggestively for sarcastically in the statement there, but never mind. But was it a midlife crisis enough that had affected Fuller to the extent for him to have committed the actions that he did before taking his own life? There was no question the inquest heard of anyone else being involved. Pathologist Dr Nicholas Hunt, who had carried out the post-mortem examination on Fuller, said, There were signs of an impact to his head. These injuries caused his death. The fractured skull and other injuries match a self-propelled fall in the order of 18 metres. Dr Alexander Kolar, meanwhile, who had performed the post-mortems on the Fuller children, told the hearing that all three children had suffered, I quote, a large incised wound to the throat and that the children's throats had been cut with such severity that their spines had been damaged. Fuller's fingerprints had been found on the 17cm hunting knife left nearby to the bodies that was determined to have been used to kill the children, and when one of Fuller's colleagues at Glatfelter, Alan Norton, was shown a picture of the knife found at the scene, he told the inquest it was identical to a hunting knife Fuller had owned that he had produced on several occasions when the two of them and another friend and co-worker, Stephen Harris, went out walking together. 
I cannot believe he did something so hateful and cruel, but I know he did it, Ruth's statement to the coroner had concluded. On Friday the 26th of April 2013, after a two-day inquest, Andrew Barclay, Deputy Coroner for Mid and Northwest Shropshire, recorded three verdicts of unlawful killing and one of suicide, concluding that overwhelming evidence had driven him to the inescapable conclusion that Kerry Fuller had acted alone in attacking his children at the disused quarry. However, he added that he had found no evidence of mental disturbance, saying, People who saw him on the weekend before he died said he was still his usual self. I conclude there was no loss of control, indeed, quite the opposite. Kerry Fuller had his full mental capacity that day. After offering his condolences to members of the couple's family, the coroner said, It is clear to me that the relationship between Ruth and her husband had lasted for about 15 years and was generally quite good. It appears there were ups and downs and there were separations, but nothing so remarkable as to give a clue as to what followed. What happened in the coppice that night might never be known. A great darkness descended on the quarry. It was a scene of unimaginable horror, the sort of things nightmares are made of. Couldn't argue with him at all there, could you? Now, following the inquest, Ron Tocknell wrote a quite remarkable, open, 1800-word letter to the Gloucester Citizen newspaper, part of which is as follows. Kerry, perhaps some of you feel anger towards him. You know him only as the man who did this. I know him as the man who fell in love with my daughter. I know him as the man who worked tirelessly to support the family he worshipped. I know him as the man who, with my daughter, raised my beautiful grandchildren in an environment of love and joy and laughter. He and Ruth taught them responsibility so they knew why they couldn't always get their own way, and they were able to accept these boundaries with understanding instead of resentment. I don't think I ever heard the phrase, because I said so, in the Fuller household. When he played with them, it was never as an adult amusing the children. He would surrender himself to the joys of playing, as if he too were a child. When he had to address misbehaviour, he did so with reason, and never with punishment. Perhaps we will never understand the torment in Kerry's mind that drove him to such an act, but I know that this was not an act of malice or spite. Mr Tocknell also paid tribute to his intelligent, articulate and loving grandchildren in the letter, continuing, Sam was an astoundingly intelligent boy with a surprisingly sophisticated sense of humour who wanted to be a comic book writer. He was interested in so many things and ate life up with a spoon. He loved computers, natural science, biology, maths, astronomy and all the studies that could help him to figure out exactly how the universe works. I'm so grateful for the time that I had with him. Of his elder granddaughter, he said, Becca was the quiet one. Until very recently, she was intensely shy and introverted. In the last year or so, however, she began to blossom. She became more outward and able to communicate her thoughts. She was artistic and articulate, and very much like her mother. And paying tribute to the youngest of the three, Charlotte, he went on, Charlie was extroverted and assertive, as keen for hugs and kisses as she was for photo opportunities. We had them for so short a time. 
No grandparents should have to bury their grandchildren and no parents should have to bury their sons or daughters. But this has happened and we must deal with it. Each day is hard to get through. Today has been hard, yesterday was hard and tomorrow will be hard. The pain will be with us forever and will never ease but we will get stronger and we will survive this. I weep for my daughter's pain. I weep for the loss of my grandchildren and I weep for Kerry's pain and confusion in equal measures. Despite the nature of what occurred, there are no villains in this dreadful episode, there are only victims. He will always remain the man I am proud to have called my son-in-law. We cannot dictate the random paths our lives take. I would ask you all to suspend judgment and find compassion for all. It's quite remarkable words those, aren't they, eh? I thought that was outstanding to read. Ruth Fulham maintained a silence for several years afterwards, destroyed by the loss of her family. But some six years later, although still not in any position to be able to be interviewed, she was able to put her thoughts down into a social media post, which with her permission was reproduced by the Gloucestershire Live website. Permission was given because Ruth wanted better access to mental health support and open forums for discussion about the difficulties faced by people suffering mental health crises, fearing tragedies such as her own loss will continue to happen unless something changes. In her address, she said, I'm feeling a bit brave today, so I'm going to say something I really believe in, even though people who just don't understand could twist it up in all sorts of ways and attack me for what they think I mean. I have to say it anyway because it matters. It really matters. Society really, really failed my children. We're supposed to be an intellectual species, and yet it is with all the intelligence of, of cavemen that we punish crime instead of helping grossly maladjusted people to become functioning and fulfilled members of society. If we punish difference, then we create incentive to hide those differences instead of taking them to someone who can help us to address the ones that are problematic. Society did not encourage Kerry Fuller to be honest about what was going on with him and reach out for help. It encouraged him to feel fear and shame and hide his problems rather than risk persecution for them. He was very, very ill and society was sending a clear message that he would be hated and punished for that, not helped. I became a very dark thing indeed after what he did to my children. I couldn't take my rage out on him, and it wouldn't have been enough if I could. It felt like rage enough to rip worlds apart, and the truth is that I wanted to. But I was honest about all of the darkness inside me, and I was helped. People kept telling me that it was understandable that I should feel such dark rage. But what if they didn't understand? If people didn't understand why I felt the way I felt, would they have still helped me to recover from feeling that way? Or would society have just as casually failed me and those around me as we failed Kerry and those around him? I'm not writing this in Kerry's defence. He has no loyalty from me. But in defence of those, we have not yet failed and don't have to because we have all the tools to help. In the defence of children at risk from maladjusted people who are in hiding because we would hate them rather than help them, in defence of the far better society that we can be. I'm writing this for my children who would still be here with me now if we were a society that helped people like Kerry instead of hating. So, 
despite the findings at the inquest, was Kerry Fuller at the time suffering from mental illness that had slowly built and built until he snapped in the most unimaginable of ways? Dr. Michael Sinclair, a consultant counselling psychologist and associate fellow of the British Psychological Society, said afterwards in response to the case, Stabbing your children is an act of violence and it seems to have been a planned event, which makes me speculate that there was a growing resentment and anger within this man and he reached a point where he couldn't do any more to manage the feelings of inadequacy and low self-worth. It may have been motivated by revenge, but it also could have been a perceived altruism that the children wouldn't cope without him and so it was better to take them with him. The fact that he was working functioning as a father and in the community makes it more likely that this was a serious emotional problem, a build-up of rage and anger, which ended with an attempt to regain control over his feelings and family. And look how that worked out. Could Fuller really not deal with any possible changes to his perceived domestic life to the extent where he would rather end his life and the life of his children rather than try to cope and adapt to a changed domestic setting, perhaps one that wasn't even beyond repair. And had Ruth not made the decision to go to her parents that morning, would he have killed her too? An incredibly sad tale this time around, I'm sure that you'll agree. Now, I don't really want to imagine the final moments of the Fuller children, well, the last few hours really. I mean, what was going through the mind of Kerry Fuller that Thursday is something that we can never know. Threatened by Ruth wanting more independence and her attraction to another man, did anger, fear or an inability to cope with his idyllic domestic setup being threatened cause Kerry Fuller to snap and commit carnage? Did he drive around aimlessly with his children that day after Ruth telling him she was leaving, battling with his thoughts, perhaps trying to clear his head and rationale the situation, wrestling with whatever demons was in him? but it was a battle that he couldn't win and he just snapped, becoming an automaton. Or was it like Ruth claimed some years later that he'd been ill for a while, getting progressively worse into a downward spiral and one under the radar? For being a private and quiet person, he was loath to seek help for it. Aside from his counselling 11 years previously, there was no reports of Fuller ever having come to the attention of medical or mental health professionals before. If he had, could this have been avoided? His actions, why exactly he chose to do what he did that day, the reasons for will always remain mere speculation, for it is something that we can never know, as as we see so often in cases such as this, he took his own life after taking the lives of his children. Could he not face life in prison for his actions, or could he just not face life itself to have to live with what he'd done? tragic beyond words. I was struck also so much with the open letter that his father-in-law Ron wrote to the Gloucester Citizen newspaper. I mean, that's a truly remarkable letter that is, isn't it? Such coherent, crystal clear words, the compassion and introspection just shine out through them, don't they? With such a tragedy so raw as well. Words fail me, I found it incredible to read, and in the same situation, I honestly don't know if I could write anything similar. Now it's easy and the natural reaction to something so abhorrent is to vilify someone such as Fuller, I dare say. 
and of course I in no way condone his actions, they truly are horrific. But as we've heard countless times before on the show, the terrifying thing is that darkness that leads to actions such as this aren't just limited to those people who look like your stereotypical bloody axe-wielding maniac. That darkness can creep up on the person next door to you, or the person that you walk past in the street every day without giving a second glance to. It can happen to you or me, and terrifyingly, whilst it isn't always as extreme as described here, you can surely never know how it will unfold unless you experience a level such as this firsthand. It may be different for everybody, or it may be something that is just impossible for anybody to fight. You just don't know until you're faced with it, do you? And sometimes, well, sometimes sadly it manifests in the most extreme, destructive and tragic of ways. I would be interested as always to hear your thoughts and feedback concerning the tale I've brought to you this time around in the episode Snapped, which you can do so by joining in discussions on the thread that is now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or by doing so through any of the show's social media links. You can get me pretty much anywhere you know by now guys, and I shall always get back to you. Now looming up very soon on the show, I'm pleased to say I have a fabulous contribution from none other than Jess Carter, the host of the Outlines podcast, who's been beavering away on a fascinating case that I've long had knocking around my laptop, and that's had the Jess Carter treatment, and it's about time for another two-parter as well, so look out for that coming very soon. Always much to do and no laurels whatsoever to rest on. So that is about wrap-up time here for me right now, and I'll head off and crack right on with doing what I do. I thank you all very kindly for joining me here today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.